First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the book of Micah? Uh, This is our 11th week in this 12-week study of the 12 minor prophets, which means that next week on Palm Sunday, uh, we'll be uh, wrapping this series up. But I I love the book that we are looking at today, the book of Micah. And uh, my wife Megan and I, in fact, love the name of this prophet so much that we named our second son uh, after him. Uh, The name Micah uh, means, who is like the Lord? Of course, the answer to that question is nobody. Right? No one is like him. He is uh, peerless. He's without rival. He is the most high God uh, who has created us, who's created everything that we see, who loves us so very much that he gave us his one and only son, his son Jesus, to die for us. And so today, our great matchless God is at the mic, and he wants to speak to us through his word, through this book of Micah that he's given to us. Now, the book of Micah was written uh, 300 years earlier than the book that we studied last week, the book of Malachi. So we're kind of moving back in time uh, a little bit here to about the middle of the 8th century B.C. Uh, Micah lived and ministered around the same time as the prophets Hosea and Isaiah. Uh, We know that from the list of kings that he gives us in uh, the very first verse of this book. Look at that with me, Micah chapter 1. In verse 1, says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. It says there that the prophet Micah was from the town named Morasheth. That was just a little town about 25 miles or so southwest of Jerusalem. And so, if you will, he was kind of a country boy that God had called and sent with a message to the big cities, uh, the big cities of Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, we need to remember at this time, the people of God were divided into two kingdoms. Had the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria was the capital city of Israel. Then you had the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem was its capital City, And so God sends Micah really to announce to both of these kingdoms that because of their sin against the Lord, the judgment of God was going to come. Now that judgment would come to the northern kingdom of Israel first. That happened just a few years after this book was written in 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire came in and conquered them. And we read about that in chapter 1 of Micah. But really, in the remainder of the book of Micah, he is really speaking to the southern kingdom, to Judah, which was, of course, where he was from. And he's announcing to them that their day of judgment was going to come also, even if it would wait a few years before it happened. And if you turn over to chapter 4 and verse 10, Micah even tells them that in their case, in Judah's case, it would not be the Assyrians that would come and conquer them, but it would be another world superpower that was going to rise up after the Assyrians, uh, none other than the Babylonians. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And there's a whole lot in that 
one verse. God is announcing through his prophet Micah, again, who it would be that would conquer them, the Babylonians. He's announcing that they would be taken away into captivity, and that happened about 150 years after this in 586 B.C., And then he even announces that God would deliver them from Babylon and bring them back again. And of course, all of that transpired exactly as God said it would through his prophet. The seven chapters of the book of Micah are really organized around three speeches. So a simple outline for the book of Micah is the first speech is in chapters one and two. The second speech is in chapters three through five. And the third speech is in chapters six and seven. And each one of those three speeches starts with the word here. You can find that at the beginning of chapter one, the beginning of chapter three, and the beginning of chapter six. And God did want his people to hear. He wanted them to listen to all of this that he was communicating about uh, their sin, about the judgment that was going to come, but also, and each of the three speeches ends with a note of this, also about the salvation that God was going to bring in the end, even in spite of their sin. Of course, we will not be able to cover all seven chapters of the book of Micah uh, this morning in the time that we have, but I do want us to look at what I believe is the key passage in this book that really contains the key message of the book of Micah. And so if you'll turn with me over to Micah chapter 6 and look with me at verses 6 through 8, which we read together a few minutes ago. Our choir sang these words for us as well. And notice that these words begin with a question. In verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And we'll come back to this in just a few moments. But basically what this worshiper is asking is, How can my life please the Lord? What does the Lord require of me? What does he want from me? What does he want from my life? And if you think about it, that's really a question that every single one of us should be asking. If we understand what the Bible teaches, if we understand that God has created us and put us on this planet and given us this gift of life, and one day at the end of this gift of life, we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives, the one who made us. When we understand that, we're going to want to know the answer to this very same question. What does the Lord require of me? Well, as we think about that question today, as we look at these verses in the book of Micah, there there are really three messages here about what God requires from all of us, and they are all so important. The first message in verses six and seven is really about what God does not require of us. Micah, I believe, is taking on the role of a a random hypothetical worshiper in Judah who is asking this question, with what shall I come before the Lord? He's taking on the role of somebody who's heard the entire rest of this book, who's heard everything that Micah has said about uh, the sin that they've committed, their their sin of worshiping false gods, uh, their sin of exploiting people and stealing from people, the sin of their leaders, both their civic leaders and their spiritual leaders. This person has heard all of that. They've understood uh, the depth of their sin. They've understood the greatness of God. And now in light of that, they're asking this question, well, how then can I come before the Lord? What do I need to bring with me in order to bow down before him and worship him when I am a sinner like this? Now, this worshiper is going to throw out the wrong answer to that question. But we need to understand he is at least asking the right 
question. Many people today are not asking the right question. Many people today, I think because of the way we view ourselves more highly than we ought, the way we view God not as highly as we ought, many people today are asking the question, how can a good God let anybody go to hell? You know, when you read through the pages of Scripture, you realize we really need to be asking a far different question, and that is how does a just and holy and righteous God let any of us in this room who are sinners go to heaven? Well, that's the question that Micah is dealing with in this book. With what shall I as a sinner come before the Lord? It is true, church, that God is imminent, that he is near to us, that he wants us to draw near to him. But in our culture today, we have overplayed imminence and underplayed transcendence. Yes, God is near, but he is also high and lifted up. He is holy and he is righteous and the train of his robe fills the temple, Isaiah told us. And when we understand that, we understand that this question is the right question. With what shall I come before him? But as I said, the wrong answer is given, at least at first. And that's because what religious people typically do when we realize that we've messed up and we uh, understand that we need to get back in God's good graces, what religious people typically do is we think if we just do a little bit more religious stuff, maybe that'll make up for it. And and that's what we see in the end of verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, This idea didn't come from nowhere. This idea came from the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament law does require burnt offerings. It does require sacrifices because of our sin. And so this would-be worshiper is saying, well, God, maybe that's what you want. Maybe you just want some more burnt offerings from me, especially if I bring uh, the perfect offering at the perfect age as Leviticus requires a calf that's in its first year of life. And then you read on in verse 7, it's almost like they're raising the bid a little bit, right? Upping the ante, so to speak, right? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? In other words, if one offering is not enough, one burnt sacrifice is enough, surely the Lord will be pleased if I bring thousands of them. Surely the Lord will be pleased if I don't just bring a little bit of oil to pour on the altar, but I bring 10,000 rivers of oil. Now, of course, nobody except perhaps if you're King Solomon had the resources to be able to offer that kind of a sacrifice. But that's not the point that Micah is making. He's raising the bid higher and higher to drive home the message. The end of verse 7, he takes it to the ultimate extreme. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Now, there's no greater sacrifice we can give than that, to give our firstborn child as an atonement for our sin. Of course, we read in the Bible that child sacrifice, which was something that the pagan people who lived around God's people did to worship their false gods, was something that God absolutely detested. And so were they to do that, it would really only add to their sin rather than take away from it. But again, that's not the point. 
The, the point that he's making is, is there some price that I could pay that would be high enough? Is there something that I can do where my sacrifice would make up for my sin and open the door for me to come in to God's presence? You know, when it comes to prices, uh, there's been a lot of talk about prices these days, hasn't there? Uh, sometimes, you know, when I get done finished uh, filling up the, the, the tank with gas, I feel like I need to give my firstborn child or <laughs> perhaps one of my kidneys, right, to pay for the amount of money that it requires. Feel the same way at the grocery store, right? And so because of, of that and how high prices are these days, a lot of people don't have a lot of miscellaneous, uh, you know, discretionary funds laying around uh, to do things. But apparently some people still do. You know, last night there was a big basketball game. How many of y'all saw that Duke and UNC last night? Big classic college rivalry and they were playing in the final four for a chance to go to the championship game tomorrow night. And, you know, I looked up the prices for that game. You know, the average ticket price to go see that game in person was $1,000. The highest ticket prices paid, according to what I saw, were $17,000. Now, some people really wanted to see uh, Duke and UNC play basketball in person, right? And they were willing to pay that price, that entry fee, in order to get in. The reality is there are some people who treat their relationship with God almost the same way. Like there's some entry fee that he wants us to pay, almost like they feel like God is running some kind of a pay-for-play type of a arrangement. You know, if I give enough, if I do enough, you know, maybe then God will be pleased with me. Now, of course, we know that there was a price that needed to be paid. There was a sacrifice that had to be made. But it was not one that we can make. It was one that God's son, Jesus Christ, made on our behalf at the cross. But there are some people who don't understand that. And so they're out there and they're trying to come up with the entry fee. And of course, when we think about that, we think about other world religions. People who feel like there's certain things they have to do in order to be saved. And if I can pray five times a day, and if I can make my pilgrimage to Mecca, and I can check all of these boxes, then maybe I will have paid enough. Maybe at the end of the day, I'll earn my ticket to paradise. But what's unfortunate is that there are some who would even say that I'm a Christian, that I'm a believer, that I believe in the word of God, and yet their thinking is very similar to that. And we can get caught up in that, where we think, you know, if I just go to church enough, and if I just confess my sins enough, and if I do enough penance, and if I give away enough money, that it's like everything that I'm doing is making some deposit in some heavenly bank someplace. And if I do that, at the end of the day, maybe in the big scale that God is holding in his hands, I've put enough deposits on the one side that it will outweigh the sin that I have on the other side. But that's not how it works. The Bible says that's not how salvation works at all. And of course, you know that if you're thinking that way and if you're living that way and if you're trying to come up with the entry fee, there's never any security in that. There's never any assurance in that, right? Because how do you know if you've done enough? Maybe you needed one more deposit. Maybe you needed one more ram. Maybe you were shy by one river of oil that you should have brought to the altar. But friend, again, that's not how it works. 
That's not what God requires or desires. There is no entry fee that any of us can pay. There's an entry fee that has already been paid at the cross. This is not what God requires. He doesn't want from us just empty religious activity that doesn't mean anything. What he wants to see is our lives transformed by his grace. We've talked about what God doesn't require. Now let's talk about the second message, what God does require. You know, Micah 6.8 is God's answer to the question the worshiper is asking. What does God require? What does God want to see in us? Well, this is what he requires. This is the only appropriate response to people who have experienced God's saving grace. And remember, that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the people of God that he has rescued from Egypt with his strong and mighty hand that he has brought into the promised land. People who've already received his grace, and he's saying, this is what I require of you. This is how I want my grace to show up in your life and in the way you live. And I love the way that that verse starts out. Verse eight, he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. God is saying that he's already shown us. He's shown every man and every woman what is good. Of course, the people who first read the book of Micah God had already shown them what was good because he had given them the law of God. He had given them the Mosaic law in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And really what we read in verse 8 here is just a summary of the law of the Old Testament. He says, I've already shown you what is good. Of course, for us who live in this New Testament age, we have an even greater advantage. Because not only do we have the law, but we have the record of the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you read those words, he has shown you, O man, what is good, think of Jesus. He is the picture of what is good. He is the picture of how God wants us to live our life. And you know, even if we don't have access to any of that, even if we didn't have access to the Old Testament or the New Testament, God still tells us in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that he has shown us what is good in creation itself. And that he has shown us what is good in our consciences. That every man and woman deep down already knows the difference between right and wrong. We know what God wants to see in our lives. And so after setting it up with those words, he's shown you, oh man, what is good. Then in the simplest way possible, in this one beautiful verse, in just three phrases, God tells us what he wants to see in our lives. This is what he says. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? I want us to look at each of those in turn. And so first off, God requires that we do justly. That we do what is just and right. Notice that it says to do justly, not just to talk about justice, not just to wish that there was justice, But as far as depends on us in every area of our life, that we who know God do what is just and what is right in the way that we treat other people. And that's precisely what the people in Micah's day were not doing. Instead of doing what was right, they were doing what was wrong. Instead of doing what was just, they were doing what was unjust. And they were robbing and exploiting others. And the Lord does not want to see that in the lives of those who are his own. And there are so many examples of what this looks like and how this plays out in our lives. But for example, if you're here today and you run a business, doing justly means that you treat your employees right. 
It means that you treat your customers right. Doing justly for all of us means that we treat our friends right. It means that we treat strangers right. It means that we don't take advantage of other people. It means that we don't rake up bills and then refuse to pay. It means that we don't mislead people. It means we don't steal from people. It means that we don't do unjust things, but you know, it also means that we who know God will stand up for those who are victims of injustice. And whenever we see that, whenever we see injustice taking place, that we will stand up, that we will speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. In our culture today, that includes so many. It includes the unborn who are victims of injustice on a daily basis. It means we stand up for the elderly and the infirm. It means that we stand up for those who are being treated differently because of the color of their skin. It means that we stand up for those who are being trafficked and abused and treated like they belong to someone else and they're their property when we know that they have been created in the image of our God. Doing justly includes all of that and so much more. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly? And to, number two, love mercy. You know, the word mercy there is a translation of one of the most important Hebrew words in the whole Bible. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And really there are no English translations of that word that are able to encapsulate everything that that Hebrew word contains. That's why different English translators will translate it different ways. Mercy here, some kindness, some call it faithfulness, some translate it as goodness, some as love. It's really all of that. Because hesed is the way God loves us. It's, it's his merciful, faithful, covenant-keeping, loyal love that he has for his people. And he's calling us to display that hesed, to display that same kind of faithful, merciful love in the way that we treat other people. And notice that while God calls us to do justly, he calls us to love mercy. Do you see that? Now, we cannot treat others mercifully unless we love mercy. Unless the love of God has so filled our hearts that it begins to overflow in the way that we treat our fellow man. Now, what does this kind of love, this kind of mercy look like in reality? Well, again, Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of hesed. As you read the accounts of Jesus' life in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, this is what you see. You see someone who loved mercy perfectly in every instance. Now think about all the occasions that we read about how he was merciful to this tax collector named Zacchaeus that nobody else wanted to associate with. How he was merciful to the lepers that people didn't want to get within 10 feet of and he reached out his hands and touched them. How he was merciful to blind Bartimaeus that everybody just wanted to be quiet and go away. How he was merciful to the woman at the well who because of shame had to come out to draw water in the middle of the day, but he was merciful to her. He's merciful to us. If you know Christ, you've experienced that mercy in a personal way. And then he taught us in the parable of the Good Samaritan that when he says that we're to love our neighbor, he means that everyone is our neighbor. That every person that we pass by 
is our neighbor. We're called to love them. He doesn't want us to pass by on the other side of the road. He wants us to do as the Good Samaritan did. He wants us to stop. He wants us to help when it's within our power to do so. And so Christian, let me ask you, who is, who is in your life right now? Who is in your circle of influence right now that you know is hurting? You know they're going through a hard time, but, but maybe up until this point, you've just kind of been passing by on the other side. Not maybe out of maliciousness, but maybe just out of just so busy and just consume with your own things. And yet God's Holy Spirit is putting that person on your heart right now because he wants you to stop this week and he wants you to love mercy enough to love them, to reach out to them. God says, this is how I want you to worship me. Not, not by just singing songs, not by just giving offerings, not by just going to church. I want you to do justly. I want you to love mercy. And then number three, he says he wants us to walk humbly with our God. And out of these three phrases, this one is really the most important. Because the reality is we cannot do the other two unless we're doing this one. Jesus taught us to love God and to love people, but we're never going to love people as we should until we love God first. Until we've entered into a loving relationship with him, we're never going to be able to walk humbly with other people until we've been taught to walk humbly with God. And of course, that starts by humbling ourselves and understanding that we need God, that we need a Savior. That humility is required to really walk with God through life. You know, if a person is still proud, they, they will not be willing to walk with God and allow God to have the control over their lives. They won't be willing to submit their lives to his control because here, here's the reality, and I really want you to see this. It's so simple, but, you know, walking with God means that he is in charge of where we walk. Right? If, if, if we're walking with God, then we need to understand he's the one leading the walk. Right? It's, it's not us. He decides where we go and how we get there. But, but, but when we're still walking in pride, we're, we're not willing to do that because we want to go our direction instead of his direction. Or we want to go at our speed instead of his speed. Isn't it hard, Christian, to sometimes wait on the Lord and his timing? Now, we want to go after our objectives, not after his objectives. And even if we get those objectives, we want to take the glory. and We don't want to give the glory to him. And so unless we have that humility, we're not going to be able to walk with the Lord. Walk humbly with your God. Now, that simple phrase, really, if you think about it, is such a simple, beautiful description of what the Christian life looks like. It's a life spent walking with your God in a world that is walking away from God. You know, when I read that phrase of walking with God, the first man that I thought of was someone that we meet in the fifth chapter of the Bible. Way back in Genesis chapter five, buried in a genealogy, there's this man we meet there whose name is Enoch. And we don't know anything about this man other than that how long he lived that he had sons and daughters. And this is what it says in chapter five, verse 24 of Genesis. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. You know, Enoch is one of only two people in the Bible who did not die. The other one, the prophet Elijah. It just says God took him. No, you're coming with me. Isn't that wonderful? 
But what I think is even more neat than that is this simple expression and description of the way that he lived his life. Enoch walked with God. Christian, isn't that the way you want to live your life? Don't you want to live your life in such a way that your name could just be put in there? Your name right here, walked with God. I know I do. That's how I want to live my life. I want to walk with the Lord. I I read about one person who became a Christian, and this is what they said after they met the Lord. They said this quote, for the first time in my life, I feel accompanied. Isn't that beautiful? Accompanied. And we are. When we, when we meet him in a saving way, we're accompanied. The Spirit of God now dwells within us. And we walk through life not on our own, but with God. And church, here's how all of this ties together. When we walk humbly with our God, he teaches us how to do all the rest. So really, that's, that's all we need to think about. We just need to think about walking humbly with our God. And when we do that, he'll teach us how to do justly. He'll teach us how to love mercy. He'll teach us how to treat people the way he wants us to treat them in the ins and the outs of our everyday real life in this world. So far, we've looked at what God doesn't require. We've looked at what God does require, but there is one more important message that we really need to take to heart about God and his requirements. And this is it, number three. We need to understand what God has done for those who haven't met his requirements. Which, by the way, is every single one of us in this room. That's so important that we know that. While Micah 6.8 describes what God requires, while it describes what God wants to see in our lives, we misunderstand this verse very badly if we think that the way to be saved is for us to try to go out in our own strength and live as justly and as mercifully as we can and hope that in the end that will be enough. Because again, salvation doesn't work that way. We saw earlier that we can't buy our salvation. We need to also understand we cannot earn our salvation. We can't give enough, but we also can't do enough. Because the truth of the matter is, we have all already failed to meet God's requirements. That there is not one person in this room, myself certainly included, who at every moment of our life has done justly, has loved mercy, and has walked humbly with our God. None of us have succeeded in doing that throughout our lives. In Micah chapter 7, after announcing the judgment that was going to come on God's people because they had failed to meet his requirements, Micah describes himself almost like a farmer that is going out in the fields at the end of the harvest season when it's already been picked over and he's looking for some ripe fruit, but he can't find any. Look at chapter 7 with me. Micah says, Woe is me, for I'm like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There's no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among men. He's looking for someone who's godly, someone who's just, someone who's faithful, but he can't find anybody. I seem to recall the apostle Paul saying something very similar in Romans chapter three when he said to us, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. We have all gone astray, Isaiah said. We've all turned aside to our own way. And so what can we do if we've already blown it and we all already have? 
Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. This is what Micah says. He's speaking of the salvation that's coming for God's people, which at the end of the day includes all of us who've trusted in Christ. But he says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so when we understand that we fail to meet his requirements, we do the same thing Micah did. We look to God. We look to his salvation and praise God, church. His salvation has already come. I know that we're all familiar, most likely with the story of the wise men that we talk about at Christmas time. You remember the wise men, they saw the star and they traveled a long distance to worship the king of the Jews who had been born. And they assumed that because he was a king, he would be born in the palace in the capital city. So they went to Jerusalem. They went all the way up to King Herod's hall. And when they met King Herod, they said, we've seen his star. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Of course, King Herod was none too pleased to hear that another rival king had been born. But he summoned the chief priests. He summoned his scribes, the people who knew the Old Testament scriptures the best. And he said to them, where does it say in the Bible, where does it say that the Messiah, the promised one, is going to be born when he's born? And they huddled together and they came to King Herod. And this is what they said to him in Matthew chapter 2. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet. You know what prophet they're talking about? The prophet Micah. The prophet that we're studying today. And then they quoted from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And this is what it says. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Church, it is because that ruler, it's because that shepherd king was born for us in Bethlehem, just like Micah told us he would be. It's because he grew up and he alone lived a perfect life. He alone was able to always do justly, always love mercy, always walk humbly with his God. And then he went to the cross and died for all of us who failed to meet that requirement. And then he rose again on the third day. And because he's done that, this is why we can be forgiven. This is the answer to the question the worshiper was asking in Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? How can I, a sinful man, bow down in the presence of the Lord? What do we need to come with when we come into the presence of the Lord? We need to come with the blood of Christ covering our sins. That's the only entry fee that needs to be paid. And it's already been paid at the cross. Micah wasn't able to see all that we have seen living as he did on the other side of the cross. But it's because of Jesus who came, because of Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, that what Micah wrote at the very end of his book is true. Look at Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 18. This is how he ends his book. He says, who is a God like you? And that's a play on his name. Remember we said the name Micah means who is like the Lord? He's saying, who is like the Lord? Who is a God like you? There's nobody like you, God. Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He loves mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Is anybody thankful God has thrown your sin into the depth of the sea? I know I am. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you've sworn to our fathers from days 
of old, the forgiveness of our sins. Again, it's not something we buy. It's not something we earn. It's a gift we receive from a God who loves mercy and has sent us a Savior. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 is so clear that God, when he says to us, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God, he's not inviting us to try to save ourselves. The Bible couldn't be more clear about that. Look at what it says in Titus 3 verse 5. It says, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Friend, if you're here today and you have not yet trusted in the Savior and received his forgiveness and received his mercy, you can receive that today. You can cry out to him from your heart and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus died for my sin and that he rose again. Come into my heart, forgive me, wash my sins. Give me that new birth that your word talks about. If you're here today and you've already done that and you you know that the Lord is your savior, that you've been saved by grace and mercy, then church, let's make it our prayer today. God, would you give us the grace to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk through life humbly with you.